If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball. From Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, from coronavirus lockdowns to critical race theory in the classroom, it has become crystal clear that America's schools aren't working for America's students and parents. My guest today has been fighting to improve education for every American student for nearly 40 years. She spent four years serving as Secretary of Education for President Donald Trump. She's joining me today to discuss her new book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. In the book, she shares stories of this decades-long struggle to bring groundbreaking reforms to American education. More importantly, she shares a roadmap for reclaiming education and securing the futures of our kids in America. And I have to say, I regard her as a good personal friend. We've been working on these kind of issues together for several decades. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Betsy DeVos. She served as the 11th U.S. Secretary of Education. She is the former chair of the American Federation for Children, the Philanthropy Roundtable, and the Michigan Republican Party. Betsy, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thanks, Newt. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. I have to ask you, because I think it's brilliant, but why did you decide to entitle the book Hostages No More? Well, it's a provocative title. 
but it's a very direct reference to a quote by Horace Mann, who is commonly known as the founder of America's education system. And when founding the K-12 system, he said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given their children as hostages to our cause. Now, I think the cause was probably quite laudable at that time, but it's clear that the cause has become a whole lot more complicated and in many cases, very inappropriate for kids in the current K-12 experience. And so it's a reference to freeing the kids from being hostages to a government-run, teacher-union-controlled system. You know, I'm curious, you've really been working on education issues for years before you became secretary. Why did you get involved and what motivated you to be so involved in education? Well, my interest started when Dick and I were looking for where we were going to send our children to school. When our oldest son was going to start kindergarten, I explored a number of schools around our hometown area and looked at various options of places that we thought he would thrive. One of the schools that I visited, which we did not end up sending him to, but which I became very involved with subsequently, was a tiny urban Christian school in the heart of Grand Rapids, serving the community around it, most families who could not afford to pay the tuition necessary to go to this school. So I started volunteering there. And the more I got involved there, the more I realized that the system that we were continuing to support as a state and as a country was unfair to the families that wanted to have their children in a place like the Potter's House, but couldn't afford to. And so what began as an advocacy role, working to provide scholarships, to do mentoring and support for volunteer activities that would enable more kids, quickly developed into a realization that only through policy change that ultimately requires politics, were we going to make a difference and empower enough families to be able to make these choices? So I really thought that it was fascinating. And of course, your family's been very influential, particularly in the Grand Rapids area of Michigan. But you have a worldwide interest through your ties to Amway. When you first were approached about becoming Secretary of Education, I mean, what was your reaction to that? Well, I had never thought about it. I had never even given it one second thought. And then when actually Jeb Bush emailed me the day after the election in 2016 and asked if I would ever consider becoming Secretary of Education, I was dumbfounded because I never literally thought about it. But then when the opportunity really materialized and I you know, had the interview with President-elect Trump and all of the folks that were helping him in that process, it became a very real possibility. And I couldn't not consider it. And I couldn't not continue to do the things that I'd been doing on a whole different level and a different scale. It's interesting. I think Jeb Bush is one of the great pioneering reformers of education. And the Florida system shows it. I mean, it's a remarkable level of choice and of openness in Florida. And I think Jeb doesn't always get the credit he deserves, and he's continued to be deeply involved in education reform. It speaks well of you if Jeb Bush thought you were the right person. I think that's a pretty strong endorsement. 
Well, I was very honored that he would even think of me in the first place. And then, of course, Vice President Mike Pence was a good friend and advocate as well. And I'm sure there were others. I don't even know the full behind the scenes, but it was certainly something I had not anticipated or planned for, but something I was really, really grateful to have the opportunity to do. I didn't realize that you had been asked to be ambassador to the Netherlands during the second term of George W. Bush. That would be an honor. And of course, coming from the part of Michigan you're from, it would be sort of natural. Why did you decide that wasn't the path you wanted to be on? Well, I was very honored to have that opportunity as well. And my ancestry is 100% Dutch, so it was a natural fit. But the time at which I was offered that opportunity to do that role. It just didn't work for both Dick and me and for our family. And I was, you know, deeply involved in advocating for education freedom. We called it school choice then, but I was really involved with that as well as a number of other things and just felt that my energies were best continued directed in that way. You know, and I appreciate it very much you allowing me to come down a couple times while you were the secretary, do things with you. And It's very striking that we actually spend more money than any other major developed country on education, and yet we don't get the results. We spend, I think, 37% more per pupil than the other major developed nations. But in 2018, the top five rated countries for education were China, Singapore, Estonia, Japan, and South Korea, and the U.S. ranked 22nd. How do you explain this dramatic difference? Well, I think the simple explanation is we operate under essentially a government-run monopoly, and monopolies don't work. And that is bearing out in the results that we've seen for decades. And this last two years has really laid bare these realities for many more families across the country. They're seeing what you and I have seen for many years before. And the reality is we're not getting the results individual kids are not getting the learning they need. And it's a untenable system to keep spending more and more and more money doing the same thing and then expect different results. You know, since the Department of Education was founded in 1979 as a payoff to the teachers unions by Jimmy Carter for their endorsement, we've spent over a trillion dollars at the federal level alone with the express goal of closing the achievement gap. Not only have the achievement gaps not narrowed one little bit, by most measures, they've actually widened. And the most recent data shows that those at the top end of the performance scale have really plateaued. They're not making any more headway. And those at the bottom have just plummeted even further. And these were assessments from before the pandemic. And apparently the pandemic made it much worse. Absolutely. And we won't know for several years what the real implications are, but we know from near-term data that most kids have lost several months, if not a full year or more, of learning because of all of the COVID nonsense. To make your point vivid for our audience, one of the things which frightens me when I'm asked, what are the greatest threats to our future? I say always education is the biggest threat. This goes all the way back to Ronald Reagan's report in 1983 called A Nation at Risk, because I think we really are at risk. But one of the most sobering things, before we got to COVID, before we got to shutdowns, before we got to trying to learn virtually, in 2019, 34% of our country's fourth graders could not read at grade level. Exactly. 
I don't know how they can be citizens, and I don't know how they can earn a living in the modern world if they're being failed that much by the education system. What do you think could break through in changing that? Well, the simple policy solution that I have long advocated for and that I continue to advocate for is education freedom. So I like to use the metaphor of a backpack. Kids go to school every day with the stuff they need for the day in their backpack. We should, metaphorically speaking, put the resources that are already being spent on that child in that backpack for the family to decide where that child's going to go get their education and get their learning. And I hesitate to use the word school because I think that's too small a thinking. We have to think more broadly about what education can look like for kids in their K-12 years. We've seen a lot of creativity through the pandemic of families who out of necessity took their kids and formed several family consortiums to homeschool their children and maybe hired a teacher to do it, or maybe one or more of the parents were equipped to do it. We've seen other families form little micro schools. We've seen a development of really strong virtual programs and school options. We saw that private schools for the most part and most charter schools opened up far before the traditional public schools did during the pandemic. There were lots of solutions that were happening, but tragically for the kids that need the most, those solutions weren't available. And they're the ones who are going to have the long-term harm. So I go back around to this notion that we should be funding individual children directly, not systems or buildings, which we've just traditionally talked about. You know, the system needs that much more money for whatever. No, it's each child that needs the money for their education. And let the families decide how they're going to get those education provisions We're going to have a whole lot more creativity when we create and empower all of those customers to seek it out. From your perspective, having looked at the whole country, what's the general impact of homeschooling? Well, the numbers that have been reported during the pandemic, homeschooling numbers more than doubled. And interestingly, among Black families, they quintupled. So the last numbers I saw were 15% of Black families are homeschooling. And these are just numbers that are reported. Does homeschooling seem to work? I mean, I hear both sides of this. In your sense, do most children who go through a homeschooling experience seem to learn more than they would have in a traditional school? Well, I've met with lots of homeschool families over the years, and many of them are highly impressive. They view the world as their classroom, and they use the resources around them to go and learn what they want and need to learn. And so there's many different ways to approach homeschooling. And lots of folks in the last two years have discovered many of those. But the resources have also grown tremendously for those who want to access their education in a you know remote or different location. So homeschooling should be supported and should be encouraged. And all kinds of iterations of that should be encouraged as well. Empowering families with the resources to do that makes imminent sense. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our nation. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. In my new book, 
defeating big government socialism, saving America's future. I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. It is a must-read for any concerned citizen. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can pre-order my book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at Gingrich360.com book, and the book will be shipped directly to you when it comes out on July 12th. Don't miss out on this special offer to pre-order my new book today. Go to Gingrich360.com book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com book. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, We've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. 
like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've been involved in school choice since Tommy Thompson began working on it with Jesse Jackson, state chair, Polly Williams in Wisconsin back in the late 80s. But you've added something that I think is really right. And I've talked about it before, but I never had quite the language you've got. I really want to praise you for having come up with this. And that's the difference between school choice as a strategy and education freedom. The way you've described it is a remarkable breakthrough. Could you talk a little bit about education freedom? Certainly. Education freedom to me means empowering every child and their family with the ability to customize their education if they want, choose their same assigned school if they want, or go to another school that already exists in their neighborhood or in their city. Or it could mean putting together a customized menu of options for a particular child based on their needs. And maybe you have a middle school daughter who's particularly ambitious. Say in the morning, she takes a virtual class in Hindi from the finest professor on the other side of the world with students from all over the world. And then perhaps after that, she goes to a charter school for all of her applied maths and sciences and a hands-on learning environment. And then maybe she goes to her church that has now formed a school for language arts and character development curricula and basically putting together a customized menu of learning that would suit her interests and needs. This could happen anywhere. This could revolutionize kids' experience of their K-12 years. I think about a little school that I haven't visited, but I have a number of relatives whose grandchildren go to this outdoor school. It's in Michigan, and they're literally outdoors all day long. They come in for very limited periods of time, even in the winter, but they're outdoors and active and learning all day long. And the kids in that particular environment are thriving. We haven't begun to see the creativity around how we could provide education experiences to kids because we've been stuck in this one-size-fits-all industrial model for over 175 years. I have to say, having married somebody from Wisconsin, the idea of a year-round outdoor school, you've now got my mind going down all sorts of different paths. I'm going to have to think about this one for a little while. I mean, it's a great concept, and they must be very hardy students to be able to do that. Now, you know, it's interesting. We do have a model for the money following the student. It's called Pell Grants. I used to work with Senator Lamar Alexander when he was chairman of the Health, Education, and Labor Committee in the Senate on this whole notion of why can't we have the equivalent of Pell Grants all the way down so that the money is out of the bureaucracy in the hands of the student and parents? Wouldn't that model, which has been clearly accepted for higher education, Wouldn't that model be dramatically liberating for K through 12? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. As you know, we proposed sort of a companion piece of legislation to that that would have established a federal tax credit pool, not a program, a pool where individuals and corporations could direct a small portion of their federal tax bill into a scholarship granting organization in their state or in their grandchild state or wherever they wanted to direct to a scholarship program, which then in turn would empower families and come alongside, frankly, and give a lot of rocket fuel to what individual states are doing to advance education freedom. I think this idea continues to gain momentum, particularly, again, now after navigating the last two years. I think there's increasing interest in seeing this happen, and it would be revolutionary for kids that need it the most. I think this whole idea of getting the money out of the bureaucracy so that the bureaucracy has to work to earn the money from its customers, in effect. I noticed that the Obama administration put about $7 billion into a program called School Improvement Grants, and their own Department of Education found that the test scores were totally unchanged, that the $7 billion disappeared. Exactly. Does the bureaucracy just kind of absorb the money without change? Well, bureaucracy is part of the problem. The other part of the problem is this notion that a top-down approach to fixing things and doing them monolithically across a certain geography or certain profile of school is going to make a difference. Well, the School Improvement Grant Program showed no improvement. It was studied by multiple institutions, Harvard, Stanford, Brookings Institute. And so, again, the question is, why do we continue to be okay with acceding to the union demands for more and more money and expect different results. It is Einstein's definition of insanity. And I challenge people to defy that and make a change and do something totally different. This paradigm has got to shift and it's got to shift in favor of students. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have a project on trying to understand an emerging new American majority. It's something that Bernie Marcus asked us to start working on back in 2018. And one of the things we've discovered is across the board, I mean, education, healthcare, energy production, crime, things now are failing to work so much that if you simply ask people, do you think that we should return to an America that works. It's like 87% buy it. Well, if you apply the working question, it would be so obvious overnight how many of these bureaucratic unionized schools don't work by any reasonable standard. And I was noticing that among charter schools, as a general principle in New York, for example, they get 16% less money than the bureaucratic schools And across the country, they get about 33% less money. And yet, according to a study in New York, they're about 25% more cost-effective at increasing achievement in reading and math. In Indianapolis, they were 59% more cost-effective, 43% better in D.C., where I had played some role in helping get that launched, and 30% in San Antonio. Shouldn't it be obvious that if the measurement is the children, that keeping them trapped, as you point out in your book, making them the hostages of a unionized bureaucracy that's failing is exactly backwards? 
Absolutely. And I, in my book, challenge this notion that we have continued to be okay. You know, far too many elected officials have continued to support this cycle of a downward trajectory for student outcomes and achievement. You know, who we elect to office matters and what policies they support matter. And so we have got to ensure that we're electing people who are going to support students and their futures and families in their ability to make those decisions for their students in ways we've never done before. In that context, it seems to me that you can't understand the the problems in American education without understanding the extraordinary power that the teachers unions now have and the degree to which they basically own the Democratic Party. I think at one convention recently, almost half the delegates came from the teachers union. And the teachers unions have, of course, the highest vested interest in winning school board elections, although the rebellion among parents now seems to be overwhelming that, at least in a number of counties. How do you see that struggle working its way out? You confronted it directly as the Secretary of Education. You've worked around it for many, many years now. How do you see that evolving? Well, I think that the elections upcoming and some of the ones that have taken place, primary elections and off-cycle elections, Glenn Youngkin's election in Virginia for governor, a lot of these point to the fact that this is a very salient political issue today. And even scrolling back to Ron DeSantis's victory in Florida in 2018, where the margin there was almost directly attributable to the increased volume of Black women voting in favor of Ron DeSantis, double the percentage of any expected level and against an African-American competitor on the Democrat side of the equation. All of the survey data says when you ask Americans today if they support this notion of money following the student to the school that their parents decide is the one for them, three out of four, no matter how you cut it, support this notion. So politicians are going to have to acknowledge this fact and at some point buck the strength of the teachers unions. So 99.7% of the funds coming from the teachers unions and all of their allies have gone to Democrat candidates, 99.7%. I mean, what went wrong that the teachers unions are now so owned by an ideology that simply doesn't work, and yet they believe in it passionately? I really can't get inside their heads to understand their thinking But it all boils down to money and control and power. And their focus is not on what's right for individual students. And in fact, so much of their rhetoric doesn't even contemplate the student in the equation. It's just become a really rotten cycle. You know, taxpayers ultimately fund teachers' pay, teachers get union dues taken out of their pay, teachers and then all of the other members of the teachers' union that are not necessarily in the classroom. And then that goes to the union coffers to then fund candidates who turn around and vote for the kind of increases, $190 billion to the Department of Education for COVID relief, most of which hasn't even been touched. It's just a vicious, vicious cycle one that we have the opportunity to break because the American people are with families and with students. Well, as the COVID threat recedes, I mean, 
Should the unspent money be pulled back to help balance the budget? I would argue certainly, yes. I'm going to ask some people on the budget committee to look into how many different pockets of COVID relief money haven't relieved anything and are just sitting there as money as a slush fund for politicians. It strikes me that that might be a source of a surprising amount of money. I'm sure that it is. As you know from your time in the Department of Education, one of the characteristics of the modern federal bureaucracy is that it has decayed to such a degree that even if the Congress passes urgent funding, getting it through the regulatory process and the bureaucratic process means that the emergency may well be gone long before the money shows up. Yeah. I will just say, though, that the first COVID relief package, which truly was the money's $30 billion for the Department of Education, about half to higher ed, half to K-12, really with the goal of getting kids back in school and doing the things necessary to safely open the schools, we got that distributed in record time, 30 days, and it was unheard of. It never was really broadly reported, but we got the job done. The sad point is that even much later that year, less than 15% of that money was even drawn down on. Yep. And I have been a very strong advocate because Callista was the ambassador to the Vatican. And I could see in Italy, which was the first place really hit hard by COVID outside of China. And you could tell this was going to be a real disaster. So I had advocated, in fact, I wrote a newsletter saying, whatever the Trump administration thinks they're going to spend, triple it, because the problem is going to be that bad. But the notion was you did it once, you got through the crisis. Now you come back with you know what I can describe as build back poorer, which is what's happening to us right now. I think it's a nightmare for most Americans. I have to ask you at a personal level, if you don't mind, you have 10 grandchildren, which is hard to believe. Are you able to spend time with them now that you're not the secretary? And is it fun? Are you having a good time? It's wonderful. And most recent one was born two months ago and the next one five months ago. Yes, it's just a joy to be able to spend time with all of them. And most of them in, you know, sort of episodes, not all of them together at any one time very often. But when we are, we certainly grab lots of photos, which is great. That's great. And you've certainly earned it. And I think you bring that kind of mothering and grandmothering intensity to trying to save every child and give every child a chance to truly have a good education. I'm so delighted that you have stayed active. And I think Hostages No More is a really, really important book. And as I said, you've sort of broadened my own thinking towards education freedom rather than school choice. I want to thank you for serving as Secretary of Education. I remember how much you were doing and how hard you were working and how much you and your team were changing the bureaucracy. Well, thank you, Newt. Like I said, it was a deep honor to serve, and my commitment to students continues. I will continue to fight for them and fight for their futures every breath I take. Thank you to my guest, Betsy DeVos. You can get a link to buy her new book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360, and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. 
Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.